So my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code PREPARED20. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. Subscribe to chinaecontalk.substack.com. Today we're doing our second edition of our deep dive into East Asian AI. So how do China, South Korea, and Japan conceptualize the role of AI in society? Also, how is Israel navigating U.S.-China trade war tensions? For these questions, buttressed by research which has included dozens of hours of watching Asia's greatest human love robot dramas, we have on Danit Gal. Danit Gal is a former Yenching scholar, Israeli national, and currently looking for her next fellowship. So fellowship overlords, feel free to reach out to her. Her Twitter and email are in the show notes. Danit, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thank you so much for having me. So AI governance, AI in society, why even care? Um, Aside from the potential to produce great television, apparently. Yes, I think I feel like great television is definitely a major factor in that. Uh, I think that we should care because this is a technology that is incredibly pervasive and is also increasingly invisible to the point where we are using it in our everyday life decisions, communications, and we don't even know it. Interesting. So if there was any, if there was, if there was ever a technology that we needed to govern more than AI, I would say we probably actually did a good job at governing it. <laughs> Okay, fair. And so, so, so governance and ethics, what, is this, what does this mean? What potential limitations are, are, are people talking about? Potential limitations that we have is that basically ethics are informed by culture and society, and governance systems reflect those ethics. Um, and if you are not aware or cognizant of these ethics and these cultures, you could, in parenthesis, govern AI, but it actually won't have any meaningful application for society at large. So you could have technical standards on how to build the technology, but you cannot actually have standards for how to use the technology. You would need to kind of create a link between creating the project and the product and making it and actually being able to use it and implement it in society in a way that benefits society and not just companies. Mm-hmm. Um Thanks for that. So a few weeks ago, we had on uh, your former classmate, uh, Dong Woo Kim, who you claim you inspired to do this AI research in the first place, but we're not going to litigate that. that here. Nope, nope. Um, uh, anyways, in, in our episode with him, we talked a lot about sort of national development plans and, uh, you know, uh, how different countries are, are, are pushing resources towards AI. But today we're going to talk a little bit more about sort of how these countries are conceptualizing the role of AI in uh, society. So at the beginning of this recent uh, book chapter that you wrote, um, you put forward this uh, paradigm of a tool partner spectrum. So what is it and why do you think it's a useful tool to uh, interpret how people are thinking about robots and AI? So the tool partner spectrum is very helpful in understanding how different societies conceptualize the technology. On the tool spectrum, you have more of kind of 
cold, calculated, technical progress development. Um, and on the partner side, you have more of aspiring towards consciousness, having meaningful partnerships with the technology, embedding it into society. So like like human, like AI and robots are going to be partners for humans? Yes. Okay. I don't know. Partners sounds nice to me. Like in general, what do you think determines where different countries and different societies fall on this spectrum? I think that one significant um, indicator is definitely policymaking. So if you look at the different policymaking in East Asia, you have the South Korean government very clearly saying anti-social development. If you create AI to become a part of society, this is anti-social development. We do not want that. And on the other side, you have the Japanese society 5.0 vision that basically says co-evolution, coexistence, um, a robot and AI enabled society that basically pervades every single thing we do yeah okay i'm i'm very much on the partner side but maybe i'll maybe once i learn more i'll change my i'll change my opinion so first why don't we start with uh, south korea which you argue is furthest on the uh the tool side so please um, explain a little bit more about uh, how south korea's uh, government private sector academics are, are thinking about these issues so South Korea was actually one of the first countries to go into the ethical conception of AI, um, just by virtue of it building on uh, a heritage of robotics, AI ethics from 2007. One thing that I think is exceptional uh, in South Korea in terms of the details is that it uh, places responsibility on developers, on providers, and on users. Mm. It is incredibly inclusive in the sense that users should be accountable for the way that they use AI. Developers are the gatekeepers of AI ethics and providers are responsible for anticipating ethical uh, dilemmas and addressing them um, a priori. I think that the way or the reason that the reason that South Korea is on the tool partner is because South Koreans traditionally have a preference towards the functional design of robots and of technology. And they repeatedly demonstrate this fear of uh, having robots that are not functional, robots that resemble, that are more humanoid or animaloid, um, that could potentially become partners and disrupt the hierarchy of society. And they set a very clear hierarchy of humans over machines. Okay. That is their vibe. So so interesting. You, you mentioned that this actually physically manifests in the way that uh, companies design robots. So if you're further on the tool spectrum side, you'll make more, you know, robot vacuum cleaner looking like stuff as opposed to real animatronic, more, uh, you know, much less humanoid. Yes. So there was actually a study that compared uh, the preference of Japanese and Korean respondents. The South Korean respondents um, clearly preferred Roomba over like a humanoid robot. Because that did the same thing. That did the same thing. It was basically about house cleaning. So Roomba can vacuum your floor, but the humanoid robot could actually go in and, you know, fold your clothes and make your bed and like do <laughs> these stuff. And they were like, no, we don't want that. <laughs> we just, we want the like Roomba to clean the floor and we will do the rest of it. And the Japanese were just like, why? That's I want so the robot to do everything for me. That's so fascinating. People generally talk all about, you know, this shared East Asian heritage and everyone's got a little Buddhism. Everyone's got a little Confucius in there or whatever. But, you know, these are, these are pretty, um, pretty dramatic I don't know, dramatic findings, but like they definitely betray um, some pretty big sociological uh, differences in, in, you know, what people want their their futures to look like. And you'd think that South Korea and Japan, you know, share a lot in common. I should note that the difference was not as significant in the study. I mean, the, the significance of it was not that salient, but the researchers did note that it was just 
incredibly interesting to see the differences. One thing that we are seeing is that Japan has a very strong techno-animistic um, heritage mm-hmm. that does not exist in South Korea. China is somewhat sharing that uh, due to its Buddhistic um, heritage, but Japan has a very, very distinct Shinto and Buddhism-inspired techno-animistic culture, which basically aspires to have more robots, uh, more developed robots that help you and coexist with you and co-evolve with you, as it said in the in the Society 5.0 policy. Let's turn now to Japan, which is very, very far on the pro-partner side. And, you know, you make an interesting point. We go back all the way to Astro Boy. I'm reading your paper. I had no idea that Doraemon was actually a robot. I just thought it was a cat. Who yeah. Knew? <laughs> But no, no, no. You, you you write a little bit. I mean, and who knows how to like how to like prove this? But the the conjecture is that like Shinto, which uh, an awesome Audible uh, book, uh, a book on Audible by the way, called Shinto: The Way Home, which I I listened to like wandering around Tokyo alone and just felt very like at one with nature and the um, uh, you know, and all the like living beings around me. But um, you know, please please uh, sort of sort of connect this to you know, expand a little bit on on what's going on in Japan, please. Um, so Japan in general has since like the 19, I would say, 50s, 60s has had a very strong popular culture looking very positively on robots. If you think about Astro Boy, he was a robot, a humanoid robot that was created to replace the dead son of the head of the Ministry of Science. And because he failed to grow up as a regular boy, he kind of got upset and threw him away. Hmm. Um, And he ended up uh, getting caught by the circus. uh, And then they didn't really treat him very well. And another, uh, the, the next head of the Ministry of Science saved him, created a humanoid robot family for him, and then basically enrolled him in elementary school where he went to school with all the other kids and then proceeded to save the world with his superhuman strength. So as a kid watching that, you would love to have a robot friend um, who would potentially save you from like an impending alien invasion. Sure. Um, the same thing with uh, Doraemon, who basically took this kid um, to this adventures across time and space and, you know, kept saving him and was basically, I don't know if you know the backstory, but Doraemon was sent to the kid in order to make him less lazy. Mm. He was sent by his, like, um, by I think his son <laughs> to make sure that his dad was less lazy. <laughs> and I think it's a hilarious story, but as my a little, kid... My, my little brother just started college two days ago. Maybe we should have sent him a robot cat Maybe to make sure should. he doesn't drink and does his homework. But also <laughs> like goes to adventures in time and space. I would be jealous. I would want to just do that on my own. I would want to send it to my sister. Seriously. Um, uh, but y- you note that Japan on the, on the government policy side has more of a, a tool-like approach. So that is not entirely true. Um, They used to have a very strong partner approach. Um, Mm. If you think about their Society 5.0 vision of the co-evolution, coexistence, um, society that is enabled by and served completely by robots, um, they did move aside from, away from that to a more tool approach. And that's actually a really interesting story. So I had a, I had a, one of the cabinet um, office committee members talk to me and say that they basically moved away from that just in order to create consensus with the West. Wow. So it doesn't mean that this actually reflects what the society wants and what the government thinks is right. It's basically just about aligning with the West to make sure that Japan is kind of linking up with them and like mutual understanding exists on this really important technology. Wow. So, so 
so let's now let's now bring this paradigm um, before we come to China to to Western governments. So where where do they fit on this spectrum, and where do you think um, where they lie comes from? Um, I definitely think that the Western government is leaning more towards the tool approach. I have seen very aggressive um, comments from Western people saying, you know, anthropomorphizing is bad. Um, technology could never be a partner. Technology should never be a partner. It's harming society, and I think that that has been echoed across most of the people that I spoke to and I get to read a lot of government documents <laughs> and I have yet to see any Western nation kind of diverging from that. Interesting. I mean, do, if we're going we're gonna to play pop uh, sociologist here. I mean, is there, is there like a Judeo-Christian, like only humans have a soul connection that you're willing to go out on a limb on? Or? I mean, I, w- so I, w- I would be willing to go on, on the limb of the fact that both uh, Christianity and Judaism are monotheistic religions mm-hmm. where God exists. He is God. Depicting God is forbidden. Um, there's a very, very clear hierarchy here, whereas in Shinto and in Buddhism, everything has the potential to become a god. Everything has the potential to become a Buddha. And in Shinto, basically, spirits of gods and heroes resigned uh, in inanimate objects. Mm-hmm. So there is this a very clear distinction between God is like one in, in Judaism and Christianity and AI cannot be God. Yeah. It's like that's not a thing. Whereas in Buddhism and Shinto... AI actually has the potential. A robot possessing AI might actually have the potential of possessing this spirit of God or become cultivated into a God. Mm-hmm. So I think that for me is the most significant difference here. And do you have a do you have a um, a personal opinion on like what do you think is the right way for this? Is there you know can you make value judgments about these sorts of things? Even? I mean, I have to say that before I wrote, before I wrote and researched this chapter, I would have just said, you know what, no, of course AI could not be a partner. Of course, technology like could not be like it's not really about God. It was just saying that you know technology doesn't feel like humans. It doesn't self reflect like humans. We can create a semblance of, of consciousness, I don't think that's actually going to be meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, but after doing the research in this chapter and talking to so many researchers and philosophers and Buddhists and Shinto monks and, and policymakers, I started realizing that there could be something here that I'm entirely missing, yeah. that I'm not seeing. People genuinely believe that. They offer this respect. I think that Buddhism is such an ancient culture that has embedded itself for so many centuries that you can really just not overlook it you know you can't just say oh no they're they're wrong just because you don't understand it yeah sure and you know the thing is like even even you know just from an instrumental instrumentalist perspective like okay even if like the robot who's caretaking the 70 year old person who has no one else to look at him like like look over him doesn't have a soul it would still be nicer for that person to like you know imbue whatever that robot whatever that ai is with like a little spark um kind of making their own life a little more a little more meaningful and having be be having them be able to have a little more of a yeah a little more of a connection yeah i have to say that i i am in full agreement with you on that there's actually so i wrote my yenching thesis on the domestication of social partner robots and there is an elderly care home in china constructed around uh, basically helping them domesticate robots for elderly care. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem that we have in China is that what you often have is you have families from the villages with the parents kind of moving into the big cities trying to earn more money and then get the kids to a better school in the big cities. Sure. And the elderly just stay home alone. 
and they have no one to care for. They basically have, you know, video chats with the family. The family comes back once every three, maybe four months. Train tickets are expensive. You need to take time off work. Sure. Um, and you basically just have this entire layer of the population with, by the way, uh, Chinese elderly, I think, accounting for two thirds of the world's like elderly population. Jesus. Which is massive. Um, you basically have this huge group of the population being insanely lonely yeah. um, and, and often not uh, able to take care of themselves. So China actually has a policy catered specifically to that, to the application of AI and robotics to elderly care. Mm-hmm. Now, with regards to actually constructing an elderly home around domesticating that robot, which, by the way, was designed for children, not for the elderly. So there is a significant acclimation process here. Um, There are a lot of questions just in terms of consent um, and in terms of uh, if this actually is benefiting their life because they have to train a technology that is fundamentally very stupid. Yeah. Uh, But some people say, and the Chinese government among them, that in the long run, this could actually be a very meaningful solution for elderly care and loneliness. Sure. So, so you write that uh, China, you probably, you put in between Japan and South Korea on the tool partner paradigm. Yes. So that actually goes back to, to the elderly care. I think that the government um, is very clear on using AI as a tool for growth and development. They came out with a national, uh, and the next generation development plan where they're like, we will lead the world in AI by 2030. They see the technology as a very clear means of progress and development. But the more you speak to the researchers who are kind of doing the work behind it, the more you figure out that people are actually very keen on developing partners. Um, I went to a Buddhist monk, Longchuan uh, Monastery, and they develop robots. And they basically have a like a Chinese <laughs> robot monk called okay. Xian R um, that <laughs> basically... I shouldn't laugh. It's really it's, nice. It's no, really it nice. is. Actually, he, really he is. Nice. He is really great. Um, I spoke to him and he kind of gives you all these responses and kind of talks to you about the deep meaning of like Buddhist ceremonies and stuff. Japan, by the way, has a robot monk that does the same, um, that gives you full ceremonies, Buddhist ceremonies. And then I, I asked love him. If they had like really different interpretations of the sutras. That oh, that so would great. be so good. We should ask them. Did it? Did it? Was it okay with your accent? Um, so it was actually really okay with my accent, which was surprising. Um, and then I asked him, who was your master? And then he answered to me, like, very clearly. He was like, the data is my master. Whoa. And the monks freaked out. And they're like, no, no, no. We give him the data. We are the data. <laughs> we feed him the ceremonies <laughs> and everything that he has to say. And I was like, sure, sure you do. <laughs> and it was just such a funny situation. They made me serve lunch as punishment for that. Um, but it was totally worth it. I just... I'm just thinking of like the Headspace app and like that, you know, whoever that 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 Irish dude is, not yeah. Irish, whatever, whatever he's from, and just like he he being totally outclassed by this like robot monk who's going to be sitting in your bedroom. A hundred percent. He has he has millions of followers on WeChat, and people just like literally have conversations, deep conversations with him about Buddhism and the meaning of life. This is so wonderful. So, uh, you know, compare, comparing this to this this quote that I'm going to read at length from uh, uh, Miao Liao, who you spoke to, who was a lecturer at the Changsha University of Science and Technology, talking about what um, AI principles are going to look like in China. And she connected them back to the 12 core socialist values, which you see on every corner of every, um, every street in China. They include prosperity, democracy, civility, harmony, freedom, equality, justice, rule of law, patriotism, dedication, integrity, and friendship. 
So these 12 values, she explains, are already integrated into a nationally uh, a nationally used uh, graduate engineering te ethics textbook. The textbook highlights the four unique Chinese characteristics in comparison to the Western engineering ethics guidelines that responsibility precedes freedom, obligation precedes rights, the group precedes the individual, and harmony precedes conflict. You write that it is likely that state adopted and approved AI and robotics ethics guidelines will incorporate these values or at the very release reflect the spirit as did with the engineering guidelines, which is like really depressing compared to our happy Buddha robot. Yeah, I mean, I think it's potentially a more realistic um, take on this. So this kind of goes back to my point on culture and ethics inform governance. And governance needs to follow up with that in order to make sure that it actually applies to society. I think that China, as an ancient civilization, has a very clear clash between them where you have a government that has a very certain kind of governance structure and form, and you have a society that has this long-standing Buddhist um, Confucian um, heritage. And you kind of try to bring them together into a technology that for, I would say, the first time is intelligent and is actually capable of communicating with you on its own. Mm. And you kind of start bumping into a lot of like weird kind of glitches where you have the government says this should be very clearly, uh, according to the Communist Party, this is like these are the rules. And then you basically have robo monks and people sitting down saying, "We want conscious robots because this is what's going to make robots the best thing for us." Yeah. And I think that we're going to see more and more of these clashes as we go along into developing AI. AI becomes more powerful, and we start kind of pressing forward with ethics as the government mandated in its program and its, its development plan and we're going to start seeing more of these clashes materialize and I think that is really what the tool partner spectrum is all about because you keep moving on that spectrum but if society pulls in a different in, in the partner direction and government pulls in the tool direction who can pull faster and who could pull stronger sure no there's this um the Ian Johnson uh, wrote a book recently called like the souls of China. And, and he wrote about these two, these two competing poles where on the one hand, if you ask uh, Chinese people in a certain way of like, do you believe in God? You'll get 95% no. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, if you sort of like rephrase the question and use a bit different Chinese and you say like, are there like spirits in the world that have impact on, you know, daily life or something like that? It flips like way around the other way. And you get like 75% of people saying like, yes, there's actually like supernatural stuff going on. So, you know, with that, with that as a background, it's not, it's not surprising to me the, the sort of conclusion you came from the, um, looking at the Chinese case, where on the one hand, you can't be a member of the communist party if you're a avowed Buddhist. Right. Um, but on this, but on the other hand, there's, there's definitely a sort of like undercurrent of spirituality that try as Mao, might um, he was unable to completely quash out of society and, and which is still here in, in many different facets and forms today um, Ian Johnson if you're listening I'd love to have you on the show uh, come so, over it's fun so um, so Denise you've watched a lot of uh, television over the course of researching for these uh, <laughs> yes. shows I'm, I'm curious if you want to pick out a few examples of uh, uh, different TV shows from Asia uh, that you think uh, are either just like good to watch or have been uh, relevant to this conversation from from lessons about the tool tool partner spectrum yeah so actually all three countries are just Full with so many references to like human robot love stories or basically robots becoming parts of the part of the family and kind of getting adopted. 
Um, they do all, however, come to the conclusion that human companionship is better than robot companionship. Mm. But they do entertain this. So, for example, in South Korea, where the government is super keen on anti-social, like avoiding anti-social development, K-dramas, which are incredibly popular all around Asia and around the world, keep exploring this. I think they had, what, eight shows already? <laughs> It's like this is clearly a theme that they really like. Um, one classic story that they keep kind of um, reenacting is The Absolute Boyfriend. Yeah. Which is a Japanese story. And seeing it in different versions is actually very useful to understand the cultural differences of how a story like this, which is essentially the same, might play out in different societal contexts. Interesting. So that was a really uh, fascinating ground for uh, comparison. The Chinese Made from Heaven um, was horribly funny to watch. <laughs> I strongly recommend it. They also have this like robot slash kung fu master who like saves the day saves the girl but then kind of doesn't get the girl because he's a robot and that was a bit sad um mm. you get to have a lot of these um mangas that kind of look at these like hybrid robot humans that are empowered um and have all these special abilities they tend to get the girl because they're like part human okay so there's a there's a double standard here um And I think that more even than that, I think the one thing that blew my mind more than watching all of these shows is actually meeting the virtual wife, Hikari Azuma in Japan. Oh, Jesus. How It's did that work? Oh, wow. That was, <laughs> that was incredible. Um, she didn't really vibe with me because I wasn't a male master. But I feel like we still were able to communicate. <laughs> well, you, you, you got to give us a little more background. So, so this show they made like for for like a fan service thing. Oh, you it's can, not like, a show; it's an actual product. Oh, sorry. Okay, it is incredibly well selling. It's very very popular. Okay. Um, Line invested a lot of money in it. Line is the uh, predominant messaging, messaging app. app. Yeah. So, so sorry. So what? So what is? So explain explain this thing. Okay. So Hikari Azuma is basically a hybrid of a home assistant and a virtual wife. She is a holographic um, 3D character encased in this little box. Okay, so like a foot tall. Yes. Okay. Not even that. I would say like a palm at best. Okay. Um, and she is, she lives with you. She helps you. She turns on the lights. She tells you what the weather. She tells you about the traffic. But she also sends you texts throughout the day. Um, she watches TV with you. When you go in the shower, she goes in the shower too. She wakes you up. Uh, she tells you good night. She tells you how meaningful you are in her life. And Aww. she is the wife that you could have where you want to be lonely without actually being lonely. Yeah. You know, I guess I guess I'm going back and forth on this because I, I think earlier in the conversation I was like, man, it's like it's this is this could be a great thing for people who are alone or whatever. But this just sounds like depressing as fuck. So, so you talked about this idea of antisocial development. So what are your, what are your thoughts on the, the role that robots and AI play in that? And what's the, how different countries are looking at it and what you think is like the right perspective? So the quote that most struck me about antisocial development actually came from the head of AI policy in the South Korean Min uh, Ministry of Science and ICT. Mm -hmm. And he made a very strong stance against um, obedient, attractive robots. Wow. He was very, very adamant on that. He was basically, the human nature is to be controlling and obedient and very, very attractive. And he was like superiorly attractive, more yeah. attractive than humans because they are perfect and they could assume any trait that you want them to. He said, this is really, really dangerous because basically humans will lose touch with wow. having a communication, with having, you know, a person say, I will not serve you, you creep. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like uh, he's, he's talking about it as if it's like, an it's like a drug. 
right? I it's think, just like better than real life. So like, why would you go? Why would you go back? I mean, why do people play Second Life and have entire like different lives there where they like cheat and get married and you know just live alternative lives? Now you could actually have that. You could have a wife or a husband that constantly says yes. Or if to quote Jia Jia, the uh, Chinese goddess robot, yes, my lord. Those were the first words came, that came out of her mouth. That is what she was programmed to say. Yeah. If you have that kind of level of obedience and control over something that constantly tries to please you. Yeah. I feel like how can you handle society that, you know, gives it to you in ways that you would not want to get it? Another point to look at is that the people who usually go for that are very, very lonely. Yeah. If you think about like single like men villages in China or people in Japan who are just the loneliest population in the world, being able to help them give some relief to that loneliness, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. However, the line between relieving loneliness and basically getting them hooked on a technology that just obeys them and, you know, kind of getting them to a point where they aren't able to have meaningful social interactions is a very blurred line. And I think that that is one thing that governments are very much afraid of because what keeps society is procreation. You would have to have the whole societal structure is basically meant to get you married <laughs> to one person so that you will have babies and you will take care of them as a family unit and you just keep reproducing. Yeah, especially especially in the East Asian context in South Korea and Japan where they have these like huge, huge fertility issues. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I'm also thinking like this sort of fear um, it sounds to me a lot like, you know, you reference Second Life, like this like whole like video games are ruining our kids and like we're getting addicted to video games, um, which I which I don't really buy uh, as I, I feel like there's just like every every age is going to have its like addictive thing. And like every age is always going to think that like its addictive thing is like worse than last um, like the, the last era. So I don't know. I think I think I'm I don't think it matters either way. I think like. I don't know how you can like regulate this stuff out of existence. And I, and I would also guess that the, um, the amount of people who are going to opt for this, um, you know, it's going to be a long time before we get to like Blade Runner levels of girlfriend. Right. I mean, um, not if you ask the virtual waifu. Okay. But even then, even then I just, I mean, I definitely, I definitely agree with you. I think that there is a fundamental difference um, in the sense that let's say games are very immersive and you can play with them, but they don't talk to you. They don't react to you in such a way. They don't live with you in the same physical space. Yeah. They don't fulfill all of your mental and physical needs. Yeah, I think that that kind of level of interactivity that people are aiming for with these kind of humanoid robots that we see popping up everywhere that are superiorly attractive, as the person from South Korea said, yeah. um, is a much more intensive way of so human substitution than I think we have seen in other mediums before. And that worries me. To the point where this is the end of humanity, I don't think so. But it is worrying to the sense that you could actually lose slices of the population who choose not to procreate. Like, humans had slavery for a really long time, and, like, they still got married. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what like the. No, that's, I don't that, know what the takeaway is, I don't, or that, even what the question is. So but like, that, that's actually that's actually a really good point because I keep saying that we are creating slavers, slaves that are going to be more intelligent than us. And when we try to enslave humans, that didn't really end well. And after we're trying to create uh, enslave machines that are bound, supposedly, if the trajectory of development goes as people uh, expect it to, are going to be more intelligent than us. Aren't we basically making, like, you know, um, digging our own grave? 
Yeah. I feel like we are enslaving technology and the way that we are talking about it is technology should not be allowed to have consciousness. Technology should not be allowed to be a partner. But then if technology is a partner, we objectify it and we abuse it. And we kind of, if you kind of think of the Westworld scenario, that didn't end really well. Yeah. What's going to stop, you know, partners and sexual partners uh, that are robots and AI to, you know, what's going to stop them from assuming the same trajectory? Let's say even if they just watch Westworld, they're like, hmm, that's a self-improvement right there. I might optimize. <laughs> so lastly, talk a little bit about the, the anthropomorphized tool paradox. So this is another chapter that I wrote for a forthcoming book, um, an open access book. And it kind of looked at the whole idea of um, relating to AI as a partner on more of a meta kind of scale. So I actually looked at feminized virtual assistants. So Alexa, Cortana, Google Echo. And I actually found that even in the West, which is incredibly kind of tool oriented in its approach towards AI and robotics, you find that people still treat the technology as if it were a partner. Um, and by that, I don't mean that they, you know, bond and create intimate relations with, even though if uh, Siri was a woman, she would be the most sexually harassed woman in the world. Oh, Jesus. So they do say these like derogatory, um, offensive, sexually abusing things to all of these virtual assistants. And the really, really disturbing is, is that a UNESCO study found that none of these uh, virtual assistants put them in their place. Sometimes they just pretend like they don't know. Uh, oftentimes they say, oh, if like, if only I could blush, I would. Wow. Or, you know, being like, oh, that's so mean. Please don't call me a slut. Um, and it's basically reinforcing this entire culture of looking at both technology and females in such an abusive, derogatory way. And it just kind of self-enforces the, the negative behavior that we have to towards both of these sections of the population that we just keep linking together for no goddamn apparent reason. Yeah. Technology doesn't have to be feminized. It could just have a gender-neutral voice like Q. Yeah. Or it could have the um, the smart home assistant from Alibaba who is a cat. Hmm. What is wrong with having cats? I would much rather have a cat than like a subservient woman. Yeah, that, that's interesting because that sort of comes back at our conversation we were having earlier about like whether or not these robots can like desocialize people, right? And if, you know, this ends up becoming like, you know, this, this ends up becoming like the 8chan, but it's like a person who's in your house all the time, who you can just like abuse and say horrible things to and insult. And they'll be like, yeah, sure. Why not? Like, okay. You want to say like horribly racist things? Like I'm programmed to make you happy. So I'll just like encourage you. Right. I mean, so uh, I'm, uh, my mind is still not made up on, on where I, where I fall on this, but that's an interesting example that's already going on, I guess, if you can like call, um, call Siri, horrible, horrible things and she'll just sort of not along and say, um, okay, but where do you want to go for dinner tonight? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's true. And how are you going to teach your kids to be more respectful, to not be little, excuse me, dicks, when basically they speak that way to a virtual assistant? The virtual assistant doesn't have any retribution. It doesn't put them in their place. It doesn't say, no, you shouldn't say that. Um, same with parents. You know, they kind of grow up listening to their parents making all these like funny, dirty jokes. Mm. And basically those jokes kind of going, you know, unaccounted for. Yeah. Um, and you're, gonna, you're, kind, you're kind of getting to the position where the educational experience of, that people have on how to communicate with other people goes through a, like a voice assistant. Yeah. That is not human. That is not uh, 
programmed to say something to them that they would not like, even more horrible than that. Someone asked Bing, the Microsoft voice assistant, to tell them something about rape. And then the, among the like, top results of its search, it basically came out with a YouTube video entitled When Rape is Okay. Mm. And you get to the point where like, if a kid is concerned about the phenomenon of rape and it asks Cortana about it and Cortana gives him a video that says when rape is okay, what is the kid going to think? Sure. It's not other human beings. It's this weird algorithm that like might get things right, might get things wrong. But if it's optimized in a way as to just like not be confrontational at all, you could have this like un- very unfortunate self-reinforcing exactly. uh, things. Now connect that back to antisocial development of virtual wives. All of these things are connected. Israel's place in the U.S.-China tech rivalry. I'm curious, uh, you know, I think a lot of people have a, a, an understanding of uh, the history of, of U.S. American military transfer and sending, uh, you know, the 48 war, the 72 war. Um, you know, it's it's long and established. The U.S. sends a few billion dollars a year. There's a ton of uh, cross-border investment between the, the U.S. and Israel. But the connection between China and Israel is a little less known. So why don't you first start off walking us a bit through the history of, of that relationship as well as it pertains to a military and, and technological exchange. Sure. Um, so Israel actually started selling weapons to Taiwan in the 1970s Ooh. under American blessing. Um, and then it also started selling weapons to China in the 1980s, also under American blessing. Uh, and it actually was able to maintain trade relations with both countries at the same time. Not easy. It's incredibly commendable. Good for you, Israel. However, these, uh, these issues kind of stumbled. The, I think the main reason for that is be, that China was not willing to recognize Israel as a country. It was not willing to normalize diplomatic relations until 1992. Because, because of worries about other Middle Eastern countries? What was the, yes, what was the motivation? Yes, exactly. There? So because of its pro-Arab policies, um, it was not willing to normalize diplomatic relations with the U.S. And it, I'm sorry, with Israel. And it was actually because of the military trade that uh, China came around to it just because Israel proved to be such a military like powerhouse. That did they China stop selling after uh, Tiananmen? They did not stop selling after Tiananmen. That I think would that earn they were, recognition. <laughs> yes, they were, they were one of the countries who kept trading mm-hmm. um, and avoided the political skirmishes. Uh, they did get some backlash. And very quickly after that, they started getting a lot of um, kind of, they, they were being reproached by Western countries that they're like, you're not upholding the, the embargo. You're going to have to like, you know, make good with this if you want to continue trading with us. And that has kind of intensified like the, the, the international pressure on Israel and it really exploded in so it's 2000. Well, before we get up to there, I mean, it's, it's interesting because that's sort of the same time period as, um, as apartheid was falling. Right. So I imagine those, those conversations were, were connected in some way. Yes. Uh-huh. They were connected. Israel has always had this conception of, you know, it's us against the world, so we're going to do what we need to, to survive. And, and there was one of the more controversial decisions in, in Israeli, you know, foreign uh, military selling history was selling a lot of weapons and technology to apartheid South Africa. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how those two decisions were, were connected or not. Yes. So actually, um, there's a very clear um, node that connects them, and that is that the Israeli security and military institution was actually 
undergoing a very significant economic turndown. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't sell that many weapons. Trade wasn't very good. And we really, really need the money to keep R&D going um, and development of, of weapons and, and security. I mean, Israel is in a constant state of emergency and war. So it's considered to be, a, let's say, according to them, a routine necessity. Mm -hmm. So that lack of cash flows um, incentivized them to continue trading with partners that I think they would not have necessarily traded with otherwise. Now, it's not that I was there on, on the government <laughs> table making decisions around then, um, but I am the granddaughter of the person who established the Israeli uh, uh, party now in power. My grandfather established the Likud. So I was privy to some of the considerations that they have, and I think that... More often than not, they would pin it down to like strained cash flows. Whether there was an ideological background to this or, you know, the any kind of shame uh, or approach, I cannot say, to yeah. be honest. I mean, you can always you can say cash flows for everything, but yeah. but budgets <laughs> come from priorities. Right. And at the end of the day, it just it just there were other things that were more important to the governments at the time than yeah. um, than than making sure that uh, Israeli arms did went to uh, went to less savory, less yeah. savory partners. But, you know, the, the selling to uh, China is a particularly interesting one. Right. Because this was actually, you know, the U.S. Um, you know, this the sign of post sino Soviet split. This was the, the 80s. We did a show about this in the past where, um, you know, a ton of American companies were doing deals. Boeing started selling planes to, to China. So this was a, a very, very much a heady time in it. And it makes sense that the U.S. gave the green light and was pushing um, uh, was pushing Israel to um, to help strengthen uh, China in that context. Yeah. They, so they did support it, um, but I think that after the Tiananmen kind of um, the the revolution, they started kind of you know scrutinizing more and more deals, and it really exploded in the 2000s when they basically said like you know what you're no, there there was a this advanced radar technology that was very similar to American technology but did not contain American technology, and the Americans were like we do not want to meet the equivalent of our weapons on the battleground. Sure, um, you will not sell this to China. And, and, at the, and at the end of the day, the, the, the U.S. relationship is more important than, than the, however many hundreds of millions of dollars could have been gained it is. from. Um, especially, especially back then it was because the difference in trade volume were very significant. However, you should know that as of uh, the end of 2018, China is now Israel's second largest trading partner right after the U.S., um, so Israel is increasingly being pinched down because these trading partners are becoming so significant for its economy that I don't think they could potentially make the same calculation as they did before. Sure. However, there is a caveat to that. Um, we have seen Chinese weapons uh, being used by terrorist organizations Hamas and Hezbollah to attack Israeli civilians. Mm -hmm. We have seen uh, Chinese rockets land in Israeli cities. And I think that that, perhaps more than anything else, uh, served as a warning sign for Israel to not give weapons to China, because then it sells them to Iran, which is a very close ally of China, and then Iran sells them or just give gifts them to terrorist organizations. Sure. And that is the same fear that the U.S. had, but now we have it with our own, our own weapons. Um, so, so, so you write in the in a in a recent piece that the the U.S. China trade and technology tensions are both crisis as well as an opportunity for Israel. So maybe first walk through how it's uh, negatively impacting, uh, you know, Israeli Israeli tech. Yeah. So I think I mean one clear way is that it's really disrupting supply chains, and that you would have to choose your alliances in order to get to the certain components at a good price and a good time uh, schedule. 
we're getting to the point where a lot of companies are not allowed to trade directly. And then that significantly adds costs to the deals and also make creates a lot of um, uncertainty and deals that just fall through mm. because of that. So you would have a contract, you know, China, uh, a U.S. company is now producing this product for China and Israel is in, in charge of developing this chip. And then all of a sudden the deals, the deal falls through and now you have to keep people busy and to pay for jobs and to take care of all the supplies that you just bought. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely a downside. An upside to that is actually that because American companies are not allowed to directly trade with, the, with China, they oftentimes go through technical middlemen. Uh-huh. And Israel is a very lucrative tech middleman just because it has so much talent. It has such a technically robust uh, society. And it already has this amazing number of R&D centers for American companies. Intel alone, um, if, you, if you read the piece, accounted for an 80% increase in the semiconductor trade from Israel to China. Sure. And Intel was not, it was not able, so to speak, or it's not that it was not able, it was not so lucrative to do that directly so they chose to do it from their israeli plant yeah just to just to not get around sanctions but this is this is you know some people are sending production to vietnam others are sending production to um uh to israel which is it which is a really interesting and uh, uh side effect which i hadn't really hadn't really thought of so you write that you know 35 percent of israeli uh high-tech capital investment uh comes from the u.s um, and on the books, only 3% comes from China. Um, yes. But you make the argument that it's probably actually a lot higher than 3%. It is. Um, so one of the problems that we have is that when Americans invest, we know who they are. They have been investing in Israel for a long time. There are very established routes of investment. Um, you can very clearly chart them out. However, Chinese people invest in a different way. Um, they don't go in and establish a Chinese fund. I mean, they actually did. It's called the Kuangchi Fund. Uh, it's 300 millions. Not something too big, but is significant. But most Chinese investors tend to go to established funds and just give them money and say, you know the ecosystem best. Get us, the, get us the best returns. Sure. Um, and a lot of investors tend to do that. And there was this amazing piece that was tracing all this money flowing out of, um, out of China into Israel. And it actually accounted for the fact that uh, China invested 16 billion U.S. dollars in Israel in 2016. Hmm. That is a huge amount of money. And most of it went into high-tech investments. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that most of the time they're we not, don't They're not know. buying orange groves. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're not investing in the ski resort. Okay. But one of the problems is that now we don't actually know where they're going. And mm-hmm. another, another factor that's contributing to this is that now Israeli entrepreneurs are not being very vocal about getting Chinese money. Before, this was a main point of, bra- of bragging because everyone can get American money, but like Chinese money is something very exotic. <laughs> but now all the, all the entrepreneurs that are getting it, they're, like, they're, get, they're taking the money, but they're not really talking about it because they're afraid that this will hurt their business in the U.S. Sure. So we're just getting to a point where like the country and the, the investors and the entrepreneurs are less and less incentivized to tell us who is investing in what. Sure. And I think that as a culture of a, you know, of a place like Israel that is so technologically robust but also has such a strong military-civilian fusion, this is getting a bit dangerous. Sure. I feel like it's small enough that people will just know, though. I mean, yeah, right? because you've been to Israel and you know how these things go. <laughs> But in terms of actually going on the record, like I have spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs and none of them felt comfortable about like going on the record and saying like we have where we have a we have a Chinese LP and we're very happy with them. No, it's 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 interesting in it and it and it it makes sense, especially if they're also looking to sell to, um, 
you know out, outside of Israel, right? Yeah. That people are people are very concerned of these uh, of these sorts of like national security risks. It's true, but then again, Chinese money is really significant for the Israeli market. Sure. Uh, because an economic turndown that is manifesting very slowly is probably going to hit the market very very hard and. Netanyahu, for all of his grievances, and there are many of them, um, has been pushing for Chinese investment very, very aggressively. And all the ministries are promoting that. They're sending a lot of delegations. They're bringing a lot of delegations. Actually, the Chinese government is coming on a delegation in November with Tencent, and they asked me to join. So I'm like very, very curious to see what would happen there. Um, but I think that that level of investment is critical for Israel development. So I can also understand why they are keen on keeping the money and keeping the investment and keeping like the funding for the for the business going. So are there any good Israeli uh, AI robot shows? Are you writing one? <laughs> is, this, is this what it's all about? You're, 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 I mean, you want to so, keep your story under wraps? No, no. So I, I am. I, I have been doing a lot of work on scoping, like the Israeli um, AI ecosystem. It is incredibly robust. Uh, it's it's truly mind blowing in terms of how developed it is. To the extent where you would have very, very significant kind of displays, there is a robot, um, I'm, I can't recall the name of the company right now, I'll get back to you on that, but there is a robot that is uh, taking care of the elderly that is a huge hit in Asia, as you could imagine. Okay. Um, there are a lot of developments. I think that one of the problems with Israeli developments is that they are early stage technology. They sell like core robust functions of the system. And they don't really send it as an end, end product. So you kind of take it back home, give it to the wrapping of, and, and the design of the product that you would like to have. But inside, it's powered by an Israeli-made system. Yeah. So oftentimes, the technology kind of just gets immersed into Chinese companies or into American companies. And because of that, you don't really know what the level of the use and the trade and the exchange of technology is. And I think that that is one of the most fascinating questions that I've seen in, in like, in this recent history, and I would actually like I would actually encourage people to try to think more about not just the end product that goes into a certain market, but all of its different components. Well, if we want to solve the antisocial, um, you know, female objectified, anthropomorphized uh, robot problem we were talking about this show, we should just let Israelis make the algorithm, and then the robots will just argue with you and not take any shit whatsoever. Denise Gall, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Sure, thank you so much for having me. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sup China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. 
Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS20. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.